0: The Mystic Skeptic Radio Show and Podcast, the program in which we ask the tough questions and explore different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. Our show is devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the Mystic Skeptic Mindspace. Welcome to the Mystic and the Skeptic. In this week's show, we have a special guest, Casey uh, Wells who is hey. running for president. Uh, he's going to tell us his whole background and how he got the idea to do that. It's a very contested um, election. Uh, this time around, we're getting close. We're a week away from the election. And so it's, a, it's an honor to have you here. And um, tell us uh, where you're located right now and um, a little bit about your background.
1: Hey, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate this. Um... I'm from Lexington, Illinois, and I've been here since 1992. I grew up in Southern Illinois, but my dad got a job transfer up here when I was in junior high, so I've been here ever since. And I attended Illinois State University in Bloomington Normal. I got a bachelor's degree there in fine art and a master's in arts technology. And I've been involved with art making for oh, going on a little over 20 years now, I've had a degree in painting and my bachelor's, but my master's got me more involved with um, graphic design and video editing and so on. Um, but I've done sculpture. I had this elephant I was towing around the country, made of scrap metal that was a part of my political campaign. But I've made about every form of art you could probably imagine. Um And now I'm trying to use my creativity to um, help serve the American people, to think outside the box, to try to problem solve and and figure out solutions uh, facing this country. So I want to use my creativity as a a public service now, if possible, if the American people will give me that opportunity. So
0: tell us the significance of the elephant. The elephant is a symbol of the Democrats?
1: Wow. Um, Well, most people recognize it as a Republican. Republican. Democrats are the donkey. Right. But um, it's made from an old Standard Oil farm fuel tank. And John D. Rockefeller was the founder of Standard Oil and the richest man of the last century. And with his great wealth, his family has founded many different philanthropies that have been controlling public policy for their own private benefit for about 100 years now. And they are the elephant in the room, so to speak. They are the thing that has tremendous influence over politics and economics in this country, but not in my lifetime I've ever heard a single politician ever mention their name, let alone suggest maybe we ought to do something to rein in the power and control they have over this country. And so there was one day I had this farmer um, donate because I scrapped metals to just scrape by also. And I had this you know standard oil farm fuel tank on my trailer and it take, I've spent about 10 years doing all this research about the Rockefellers and Standard Oil and their family philanthropies and their influence and so on over this country and throughout the world. But um, that tank sat on my trailer for a couple weeks and I just kept looking at it and thinking, oh, you know, like ah, I should I should get rid of that, you know, because I don't I disagree with a lot of the things that they do to control people and economics and politics. And so. But eventually, I, I decided, you know, maybe I should try to make something out of it and, and try to communicate all this information that I learned. So, the elephant became my transition out of art making into politics. You know, so I was trying to use it as a political piece. So, on one side of the elephant, I have all the subsidiaries of Standard Oil that I'm aware of, like Shell, Chevron, BP, Exxon, Mobil, ConocoPhillips, uh, Gulf, Texaco. And so on Sinclair, there's so many, 90% of the gas stations I saw while I was touring the country, I recognized as being subsidiaries of Standard Oil. But then on the butt of the elephant, I have many of the Rockefeller family philanthropies that were born out of the great wealth accumulated with John D. and and Standard Oil, like the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, the David Rockefeller Global Development Fund, the Rockefeller Family Fund, there's so many of them. And with the Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, John D. invented conditional grants, and that's money given to organizations with stipulations and directives. It's, they give them a certain amount, and then they are told what to do with that money, to what ends, and nine times out of ten, those conditional grants um, allow them to purchase control over organizations, and it helps them return money back to the corporations that they're invested into. So it's a way to purchase control and manipulate policy to help serve their own private interests. And so then on the other side of the elephant, I have written all of the types of organizations that those philanthropies donate to to control public policy for their own private benefit. Their money is behind the foundations of the Federal Reserve, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, and so on. They also donate to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, and so on. And so these people that are a part of these major organizations have tremendous influence over politics and economics. And the Rockefeller family and their influence over those organizations is what really dictates public policy throughout the country, not to mention economic development. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund were also pioneers of the term economic development and that is a way for them to get their hands into our local communities and um, to extract our real estate tax dollars to help fund redevelopment projects in our communities that will make their corporations that they're invested into a lot of wealth through that system is a way to um, funnel money back into the hands of internationalists by extracting it from our local communities and so anyway the elephant is the elephant in the room. It's not really designed to represent the the Republican Party, though the Rockefellers have called themselves Rockefeller Republicans. Hillary Clinton used to call herself a Rockefeller Republican. And so in that way, it kind of still points towards that, but it isn't like um, I'm promoting the Republican Party. It's more of a a critique against them and the party itself in in some ways. so. Do you
0: have a critique? Against the Democrats, uh, are you planning to make a, a donkey uh, sculpture?
1: <laughs> I, I, I did think of that as I was going. Um, it would have been more symbolically uh, in line with my point of view if I had a donkey like hanging up there, like kissing the elephant, and while like have a sheep in between the two of them, sandwiching it and and something, but. I You know, I, I I didn't go to that direction. I didn't really have time to make the donkey, too. And I think the elephant stood alone to represent what I was trying to communicate with the elephant in the room idea about Rockefellers and their influence and so on. It's made from a standard oil tank. I, I don't know if the next election cycle I'll decide to do this again. Maybe I'll add a donkey to it and a few other farm animals. Potentially, I'm not sure. We'll see how it all unfolds this next time around
0: so tell us about the the concept of of running for president um you know i've been struggling with friends and fellow um you know deep thinkers about what's the point of having an independent party or an independent um candidate if you know that most of the votes are going to go to these huge parties that we have so what would be the the reason that you decided to run And your justification for being a write-in candidate?
1: A lot of ways I could answer that. I I could start by saying 42% of Americans now identify themselves as independent. It's like 25% identify as Democrat. I think like 28% maybe identify as Republican or vice versa. But Republicans and Democrats are in the 20s. But 42% now identify themselves as independent. And so this idea that all our states are red states or blue states is really not a fair representation of where the American public is at. Most people are independent. I think a lot of people are really fed up with the bipartisan bickering. It seems like a lot of political circus that really isn't serving the will of the American people. We've elected Republicans and Democrats for about 168 years now straight, and I think they have, they have done a lot to corrupt our political system, like the Democratic National Convention or the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Convention or the Republican National Committee that control the Republicans and Democrats. They are private corporations that have no obligation to give the American voters a fair election or to even follow their own rules. And so uh, it's, it's crazy. Like the people that control economics and politics, like I just already explained, I can tell you three of the big six major media corporations are headquartered in the Rockefeller Center. Time Warner owns CNN and Time Warner was headquartered there for 41 years. Fox News is headquartered there. MSNBC is headquartered there. And these um, private media outlets are the ones that set the stage for the debates. And they only allow in the Republicans and Democrats because these are the corporate shills, the people that are there to serve the interest of private interests, the same kind of people I'm talking about. They have made it to where third parties aren't heard, but that is not the way it's supposed to be. There was over 1,224 campaigns that signed up to run for president this year. But luckily I was one amongst the final 11 that got above the 270 electoral college point threshold it takes to win the election. That's crazy that only 11 candidates out of 1,224 had the ability to get above that 270 electoral college point threshold, it shouldn't be that difficult. But these two parties have set up all these kind of systems with signature gathering and so on to make it so difficult for uh, third party candidates or independents to get involved. And with the way the media treats these two parties, they also make it very difficult for us to have a voice in the system. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. So I. I'm running because I I'm really tired of seeing that kind of corruption and I don't know what I can do besides run for president to, to ever hope to have the authority to potentially change that for the better, to make our elections more fair, to empower the American people in the political process and to take our country back from these private interest groups that have taken over and seized control over the political dialogue in this country. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but, uh, that's that's made my primary intent, is regardless of the challenges, I think it's important to at least try, because if you don't try, there is no chance of changing things for the better.
0: Let me ask you about this, and this is something that I brought up with someone who was supporting Donald Trump, is the idea that if if you have the progressives want to change the system, like the uh, far-left progressives because they feel that the pr- uh, system is oppressive. The issue is, is that it's been like that from the get-go. When this country was founded, as much as I have respect and love for the founding fathers, they were all merchants, they were all financiers or rich guys, and they set it up to benefit that class. So when people say, well, it took so long to get... African-Americans to be able to vote and to be considered full citizens took so long for women to be able to vote took so long for the system to change for the better is because of the systems that were set up to benefit the wealthy and the representatives of the the masses so when when you say that you want to get these powers away from the system haven't they always been there it's just been different banks and different rich merchants and other people like that who have been um, kind of maneuvering and, and building up the system the way they want it to be? Wouldn't you have to start from scratch to be able to erase that?
1: You make Yeah, there's a lot of good points there you make. Um, I, I would say of all the candidates that are running this year, I think Mark Charles, I don't know if you're familiar with him, maybe you can reach out to him to do an interview with him as well. He could probably answer that better than any other candidate this election cycle, as far as the foundations of the country, the constitution and how it was written. He wants to edit the constitution to edit out sexist and racist language to, as he says, uh, make we the people truly include all the people. And if I were elected president, I would like to have Mark Charles as a part of my cabinet to help us do that. But there's also language in some of these founding documents that we should hold on to like, you know, we, the people that's, that's, that's a great statement. If we want to make this country truly inclusive and include all the people uh, my proposal is to implement technology for direct democracy, to give the people an opportunity to give their vote on public policy. But even before the constitution, the bedrock that was established before that was the declaration of independence, and in the Declaration of Independence, it states that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Therefore, our government really has no justifiable power without our consent. And so that's why I want to create this system to allow us to provide our consent and allow the American people to be engaged in the political process because we were supposed to be a constitutional republic. You know, we're, We have a constitution, a set of laws that everybody is supposed to abide by. But the definition of a, of a republic is a state in which supreme power is held with the people and their elected representatives. Supreme power is supposed to be with we, the people, first, and then our elected representatives are supposed to represent our interests, not private interests. So there is some language in there I think is worth holding on to and and obligating um, our elected leaders to. And so I I just want to use those founding principles to take our country back to those sort of beginnings, and really empower the American people in the political process. Cause we have the opportunity now, like never before using technology to do that.
0: So one of the founders of the show, Ryan Radigan always told me that he didn't give permission to be governed. That when he was born and grew of age, no one ever asked him, Hey, can I, can I govern you? And I felt that that was um, a problematic um, stand to take because uh, I came to this country and I knew what this country was about when I became a citizen. So I guess you could say that I agreed to be governed by whoever system or people that were running it. But for him, it felt like he he didn't even get a choice. So tell us about this computer system of being able to give consent. Are you talking about every single law, every new uh, proposition is going to be put out for a vote and people are going to be able to, in a sense, almost like American Idol, be able to, uh, with their phones, uh, agree on it? Or what are you proposing?
1: Yeah, two two things. The first thing you said uh, with your friend and his stance on that, um, yeah, I think whatever public policy is in place for American citizens, there always should be an opt-in, opt-out option, depending on um, what the program is, at least government programs. So like if it's universal health care that gets in place, or universal basic income, or whatever the program is, you always should have the option of opting in and opting out of being involved in those programs. Um, I'm not for like forcing universal health care. If you don't want it, you want to keep your private insurance. But if you would like Medicare for all and being opting into a government s- system like that, I think you should have the opportunity to have access to health care. But that's all left up to we the people to work out so yes i want all policy on all levels of government on a local state and federal level any policy that's up for voting on through um, our local city councils or congress or so on i want those agendas to be transparent and uh, and itemized too i don't like this idea of bundling so many different policies in together on in one law and, and trying to pass it through you know like In one bill. I don't think that's the way it should be. We need to itemize the agendas and then have people vote on each one and whatever our collective will is. So say if the people petition to have term limits put on the table and say in your district, if um, 60% or 80% of the people in your district vote for term limits, I want to make this system obligate your elected leader to have to vote for term limits or they're removed from office. Our elected leaders are supposed to represent public interest. They're they're supposed to represent our interest. And so I just want to create a system that will allow people to log in, view upcoming government agendas, give their vote on it, have the congressmen or aldermen be able to see the statistics of what the people in their districts and their wards want, and then vote accordingly to the consent of the people that they represent.
0: When you say technology, is it going to be accessible through a website or what's your... Yeah,
1: yeah. Website, computers, smartphones, you know, it'll be a government based web service, you know, that uh, people can log on to, and then the government officials, well, it, it could be adapted on a local, state, and federal level. So, first, it's built on a federal level, and hopefully, we can implement on a federal level. And then it'll have portals where different states and city governments could access it and use its resources to develop a um a system that works just for their community so that their local governments could put up information and people in their own cities could see what the upcoming gen- agendas are and then vote accordingly there also and so um i don't That's so i just wanted to work on a local state and federal level but it'd have to be established on a federal level first
0: so in your website you mentioned um balance and, and you mentioned environmentalism, um, what are the, the key components of your administration or your platform that people can, can connect with?
1: Yeah, um, balance, equality, equity, those words are fundamental to my entire campaign and uh, fairness, you know, and so um, technology for direct democracy is absolutely my number one policy but there are many imbalances that have are at place right now in this country. And I point towards the Rockefeller family. If you follow the money, and because and, they were the richest family of the last century, and really do the research on their tremendous influence over this country, I believe that they are primarily responsible for the economic imbalances because they were the richest and they set up so many economic systems to help enrich themselves. And then they used their wealth to influence politics for their own per- personal benefit. So they've caused great disruption in politics to make a lot of these elected leaders just serve their private interest rather than public interest. And Standard Oil is the biggest fossil fuel company of all time. And so it could be argued also a lot of these ecological disasters that have occurred all over the planet. um, They could be held primarily responsible or more than any other family or organization to be responsible for a lot of the ecological disasters because they've through standard oil, they've bought a lot of patents and, and they've crushed a lot of new energy technologies and they make it to where it's really difficult for other people to present new energy ideas Uh, because they dominate the marketplace so much. And so uh, if we disrupt their philanthropies and declare that kind of philanthropy treasonous to say that nobody can use their private wealth to influence public policy for their own private benefit, I think is step one in uh, stopping political corruption. I guess step two would be to, remove all public officials from private councils. No public official should be a part of a private council while serving public office because you can't serve two masters. You can't serve private industry and and serve the public simultaneously fairly because you're always going to lean into one over the other. And so that would be the next step. I also would like to end the Federal Reserve System and have the U.S. Treasury take over their responsibilities. And if we, the people, were then in control of our government and our government was in control of our own money supply, then we, the people, could vote on policies and then have the money be issued directly, uh, debt-free, tax-free. You know, we wouldn't have to raise taxes to fund things then. And I think that would solve a lot of the economic imbalances as well. But for the ecological imbalances, I pray and hope that the American people, you know, would collectively vote on policies to preserve the planet as best we could. But most of my ecological ideas that I want to promote, um, that would be left up to the American people to vote on, and those sort of policies would have to get the public's consent to move forward.
0: In the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned either the the globalists or the universalist, so what is your uh, perspective on foreign policy and our involvement in other people's uh, conflict?
1: Well, I've researched the past four administrations, but what I'm about to say has gone on for much longer. It's been about a hundred years now, but looking back at the Clinton administration then the Bush administration, then the Obama administration, now even the Trump administration, well, those three previous administrations, like the secretaries of state, secretaries of the treasury, secretaries of commerce, secretaries of defense, all the leaders in those positions were also members of the Council on Foreign Relations while they were in public office. And the Council on Foreign Relations is a private organization. It's a non-governmental organization. And Hillary Clinton even admitted that that is where she goes to learn how she should think about foreign policy, to be told what she should do and so on. And so if those elected leaders are going to this private organization, And which is funded by Rockefeller Family Philanthropies. And David Rockefeller was the honorary chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations for like 40 years up until his death in 2017. So if this private private industry is running that and private philanthropies are running that, there's also, I guess I could add to that, there's many different corporations that are invested in the council on foreign relations. So To answer your question, how our foreign policy is largely ran in this country, many of the policies are spoon-fed to these politicians from these private organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, and policy is implemented to help those corporations that are invested in the Council on Foreign Relations to increase their wealth. Like, as far as the, the biggest military contractors in the world All of the biggest military contractors are investors into the Council on Foreign Relations. The biggest tax dodging corporations in the world, or in America at least, are all investors into the Council on Foreign Relations. The banks that got the biggest bailouts back in 2008, again, all of them are investors into the Council on Foreign Relations. That is where private industry meet with public officials to plan out policy that will be implemented in the law to help increase their own personal wealth. And I think that's all wrong. That's not the way we should be running. We shouldn't be running our country and, and our policies based on money alone, because that's their bottom line. It's profit. And if you have profit that is driving every decision, um, we really lose our humanity. And we make some really disastrous and dangerous decisions that, that are morally you know, unethical.
0: What about being the police force of the world? Like, um, I have a friend that says that if we get involved in a foreign conflict, no matter what you do, um, you're a bad guy. If if you help the people, you're the bad guy because you are paternalistic and, and coming in as a hero. If you don't help them, you're not using your power to save them. If you make deals with dictators, you're a bad guy because you're working with dictators. If you don't make deals with dictators, you're a warmonger. So no matter what you do and with other countries, you're always in trouble coming from an American perspective. What do you think should be the role of the U.S. regarding issues like
1: that? As president, I would be working for the American people first. I would want to bring home our troops I'd like to end the war on terror and focus our military on American problems, have our military in charge of border security and have our military get involved with infrastructure projects. There are so many issues in this country that need to be addressed. Like Flint, for example, still doesn't have clean water. I believe if the army Corps of engineers and the national guard were put on that issue up there in Flint, they would have that problem solved in a month or less. And And so if we used our military might to help uplift the American people, I think that's a better way to use our resources. I would like to see also the homeless in this country helped. There is so many homeless camps all over the country. I went through Austin and Los Angeles and Portland and uh, many other cities that it is just absolutely heartbreaking to see the level of homelessness in this country. And for example, like, it costs $70,000 to drop a drone missile in, in the war on terror. How many of those have we dropped since the war on terror began? We've spent over $6 trillion on the war on terror to help enrich military industrial contractors. And if we use that kind of level of commitment to, you know, help the American people, like the, the good we could do for the American people would be unreal if we just had the drive to put our resources in that direction. And I think once, if we can get to the place where many of these problems that are facing America and Americans are solved first, then I think it's time to reach out to the rest of the world to help them as well, if possible. But bombing people in these countries that are getting by on less than a dollar a day is not serving them in any good way, in my humble opinion. And so um, I I would want to bring peace to the world and help uplift the American people out of poverty and help them meet their basic needs, however possible.
0: What is your concern with the border? Um, Usually people that say um, get out of other countries and and take care of uh, the American people have like an isolationist uh, perspective. Um, What is, what is the thing that the first thing that you mentioned is, get the army and the border. Why is that?
1: I believe constitutionally that's the purpose of our military is to protect our borders. And so, and it's also the idea of, you know, we are protecting our borders and it from threats and attacks here, rather than being so aggressive, we're going thousands of miles away to drop bombs on people that really have very little chance of ever getting over here to cause disruption in America. I think it's better to protect our perimeter and to safeguard it from threats and attacks. Rather than engaging in these attacks on foreign soil, we need to just protect engagements from coming to America. But I don't agree with um, the way we conduct war uh, right now. But do you so, believe
0: that there's a threat coming from, um, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that either they're trying to turn the U.S. into Mexico or Mexico, Canada, and the and the U.S. are supposed to become one country or there's an invasion from Canada uh, of the Chinese or it's a Muslim invasion or a Latin American invasion. Do you believe in any of those things? And, and do any of those things have any merit?
1: I'm not sure. I, I don't, I don't really believe in them myself. I, I think if somebody wants to come to this country like you and become an American citizen there, we should be helping people find a pathway to citizenship in this country. If they want to be American citizens, like this country was founded on immigration. So if they want to come here legally, I think there should be an easy pathway for them to do that. And so, um, yeah, as far as other things, like the things you mentioned, I, I don't really follow those as much.
0: And then what would, what differentiates you from the Libertarian Party? I, I, I know a lot of people who are fed up with the Republicans and Democrats and they go Libertarian. And I really, you know, it's, it's the same challenge that with the Green Party. Like, they might have certain things that are not being addressed, but there's it's kind of nebulous because they they're so small or they say these great things but how can you implement them have you looked into their platform and are you willing to build coalitions with other independent groups to build a new party or a new system other than being just an independent uh, person
1: running for president i personally don't believe in political parties i don't Really understand their function, I think all politicians should just be Americans and should be working toward helping serve and protect the American people and to serve the interest of the public. I think public servants should serve public interest, and public policy should be driven by public input but that said there are there are plenty of candidates out there that have some good ideas you know, and that should be heard uh, and so it really doesn't matter what I want and what those candidates want. What matters the most is what do the American people want? And that's why I'm always coming back to technology for direct democracy. We have to get the Americans input on these policies. I would like to bring in as many of these candidates that are running for president this year as I could into my administration, if I were elected into office and then have all of our ideas put on the table and then have the American people vote on them to figure out, What sticks? What do the people want? And then help lead us in the direction of the will of the people.
0: How do you go about educating people on uh, these policies? Because um, it is also uh, paternalistic or looking down on people that, you know, Nancy Pelosi has been saying a lot. Well, you guys don't know what we're dealing with and you don't understand compromise or I've been doing this for 40 years. So they have this um, condescending uh, way of talking down to the uh, electorate. Um, How how do you go about getting people involved when we know the past uh, presidential election, we had the lowest turnout? Maybe this year is different, but um, how do you go about getting people to take ownership of their own country?
1: Well, I think the voter turnout is so low because, Because people are so frustrated with the system, they see it as a rigged system and they feel like their voice doesn't really count and that the people they're voting for really don't represent their interests. And I think if I could get technology for direct democracy in place, people would be excited to have a voice in the political process. They would be excited to share their highest visions and have those ideas voted on. And so when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter what Nancy Pelosi thinks or Mitch McConnell or... Any of these people that are in Congress or the Senate right now, it doesn't matter what they want. What matters is what the American people want. And I want to make this system obligate them to have to serve the will of the people. And so um, it would be a total flip on what you just explained. Rather than them feeling like they're above us, you know, I want to reverse it to make sure that, you know, no, you're not above us. You are equal with us or or maybe we're above you because you're supposed to be working for us. And so I, I want to give the power to the people to flip the script on what you just explained.
0: Have you looked into movements such as Occupy and even now the Black Lives Matter movements and and how they've attempted to turn the 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 coin or or make empower the people and how they've been crushed by Um, You know, it's really easy to crush any political movement nowadays. All you got to say is that they are um, treasonous, uh, unpatriotic, a bunch of crazy losers or whatever. And some of these movements such as Occupy didn't even have a leader. They were all community-based or or group-based. Have you looked into um, the other ways that people have tried to change things? Because, it, it's always strange to me that there's this idea that someone's going to come in in a white horse and fix things so even for yourself if we vote you in you would bring the vision to to give power to the people but how do we get everybody to be involved in this process and has have you seen your ideas um, be successful anywhere else in the in the world and how can we piggyback on on other? movements that have brought about some type of empowerment of people as as you like
1: to I don't know of any country that has implemented technology for direct democracy yet, but the systems of giving people an opportunity to vote are all over the place. I know there's a a web service called Lumio that allows people to vote democratically in small groups and so on. And we could use some of their ideas and have them implemented in this website I'm talking about. Also, YouTube has, you know, vote up, vote down features. So just that simple mechanism of a vote up, vote down, that's that's already in place. If we can utilize some of those features to implement it into this website, too, I think it's possible. But I don't have an example to point to how other countries have already done it. Uh, I hope we could be a leader in that regard. But as far as uh, Occupy goes, I really admire the Occupy movement, you know, coining the term the 99%. That's that's I love that. It's all about the 99%. You know, God created all of us equal, really. And we are all 99.9% identical genetically. And I don't agree with these elitist attitudes of somebody's better than somebody else. I want to see us all as equals. And as president, I would want my vote to count equally to yours and every other American citizen on any public policy matter that's on the agenda for voting on. And so. Uh, I, I respect the um, Black Lives Matter movement also. I, I think if we put uh, banning or ending qualified immunity on the table, I, th- I believe most Americans would vote for that. I don't think cops should be immune from the law just because they have a badge. They shouldn't be able to be, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. They're not there to execute people. Um, if any cop is involved in a a situation where a life is lost and they kill somebody that's unarmed, I would like to have the American people vote on, you know, should cops be held liable? Should cops be um, held criminally accountable? Should they be put on trial? I personally would vote to have them put on trial, have all the evidence presented in that case to see what really happened there and to see if they should be put in jail. I think they should suffer the same criminal penalties as any civilian would in the case of murder. Murder is the biggest crime really you could commit. And, and so I know there's been a lot of pushback to kind of crush these uprisings or these, these movements to help um, bring some justice uh, economic justice and racial justice to the earth. And it's pretty heartbreaking to see the pushback against those. Um, But, the system I'm talking about technology for direct democracy, I think would be the, the best thing we could do to really give people the chance to give their input. I think if people had a chance to give their input, it would really settle a lot of the civil unrest that's going on right now. If people had a voice in the political system that is where they can direct their anger or their rage or their, their emotions, their feelings and thoughts. If people had a chance to channel that, in a way that was positive, productive, and the outcomes reflected what their will was, I think people would be much happier with how we're being governed.
0: Tell us about the process of running for president. Uh, you, you shared with me that you've been traveling around the, the country. So how did you even get it going? And, and what was it like to, to obtain all the signatures?
1: Well, the process to start was daunting. It was scary. Really. I, I didn't know how I was going to do it. I, it was really a, a leap of faith. I first, I, like I told you, I built that elephant and then I was, I was trying to use that as a transition from art into politics. And I was going to try to sell that elephant for like $10,000 or something to fund my campaign. And I couldn't find a buyer at that price. So after a couple of months of trying to auction it online and that didn't work out, um, I was researching online and I found in Lenore, North Carolina, there was an art competition going on. It was the 34th annual sculpture celebration put on by the Caldwell Arts Council in Lenore, North Carolina. And I hauled my elephant down there uh, to submit it into this competition. And by the time I got there, I was down to my last $100. You know, I've been a pretty poor man for many years and I put everything I've had into this campaign. But I got there. I had confidence that I would do well, and by the grace of God, I did as well as you possibly could. I won uh, Best of Show and the People's Choice Award, which gave me $3,500 to continue my campaign. And that was really the boost I needed to get the confidence to really move forward, to start traveling. So I ended up spending all of that money in 2019 driving to Washington, D.C., to Chicago, to New York, to Philadelphia, St. Louis. I was all over the Midwest and East Coast and uh, traveling, going to newspapers to promote my campaign and so on. And I got in a decent amount of newspapers in 2019 going around on that tour with the money that I earned uh, from that sculpture celebration. But then I went through all that money and I was back down to like, oh, $200. And by the did a little scrapping by the time before I left in 2000 or 2020 in April, I left in April with $500 in my pocket and I had to go over 15,000 miles. I ended up putting 20,000 miles on my truck, but that was all on a leap of faith and a hope and a prayer. I left home with $500. I went up to Michigan. I had enough money to get through Michigan, maybe Ohio, and partly into Kentucky, but without, the grace of God and the generosity of the American people, there is no way I could have continued. But I told myself I was going to keep going until I had nothing left or God brought me home for one reason or another. But I was able to make it to every state in this country to get officially registered by the small donations I received as I was going every, I didn't necessarily have need have what I needed when I left home, but as I just kept going, I'd be low on money and it was like magic, soon as I needed what I needed, it would be there for me. I wouldn't really even have to ask. It would just be like there for me every step of the way. I'd get another $100 here or $200 there. And it would just keep me going and going. And so um, that was the financial aspect of it. But the uh, process in itself is so complex. It is a headache. I spent all last winter researching What it takes to run as a write in candidate in all these states. And the requirements are so different. Like there are different filing fees, there are different levels of signatures you have to get. The paperwork is different in every state. Some states don't even have the paperwork that you have to submit, you have to invent the paperwork yourself. Some states, like Arizona, didn't even tell me about that process until I already submitted all my paperwork. Then they contacted me and they said, Oh, by the way, you didn't submit this other document. We don't have that document. You have to invent that document, but we need you, your vice president and all your electors to sign this other document and turn that in. I couldn't do that because I was already home from Arizona. So Arizona didn't allow me in the only States I felt like I was really treated unfairly, despite all the challenges it took to get registered were, um, North Carolina, California, and Arizona, the rest of the States, though, I believe the processes are uh, running as a write-in are far more complex than are necessary. Um, I've, at least I felt like they treated me fairly the The elector um, like the Secretary of State, the people that worked in those offices and those elections offices treated me fairly and and so it, it was a, a heck of a process, and I understand why you know I'm one of the final eleven that got over that 270 electoral college point threshold now because it it took me six months of my life and I got about a six inch stack of paper that I had to fill out in every state. Illinois, for example, I had to register with every county in the state. Also in Tennessee, that's over 130 counties or different agencies in Illinois. Tennessee is around 95 different individual papers. I had to sign each one and send them out to every single county, write the addresses on them. And so there are all these different things. I I could, another thing I haven't mentioned yet is like Virginia, Missouri, uh, who else? Tennessee was one of them, Wisconsin, those States. And there are some others around eight required me to get one person from each congressional district to sign my paperwork. So I had to zigzag all over the state to get one person in that district to sign my paperwork, but running as a write-in, um, Other than North Carolina, the signature requirements I had to get were like however many electoral college points that state is worth. So California, for example, is worth 55 electoral college points. So I had to get 55 signatures in that state. It's always good to get a few extras because if the elector that you had signed turns out to not be a registered voter, and you don't have enough backup electors, then they'll reject your paperwork. Some states will allow you to go and get another elector. Other states will say, hey, you've already submitted it. You have no chance to put in a new elector. Sorry, you're you're not a candidate now. And so there's a lot that could be done to make our election process more uniform, more fair. And um, I would like to put it to the American people to hear everybody's input on ideas to help make our election process more fair to make it not so challenging for candidates like me to have a voice in the process and to uh, run for president.
0: So let's say you don't get elected. What's next and what did you learn from this process?
1: Well, I'll probably continue to make art. I'll continue to attempt to expose corruption. I'll probably continue to scrap metals, to scrape by um, regardless. And so I was all, I was hoping to park the elephant on the white house lawn, but you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't know if that's going to work out this time around, but um, I don't know if I'll run again. I'm not sure. I've really learned one thing that the, the political, the election process in this country is far more corrupt or damaged or it just feels like it's, the first election that's ever been put on and that's all being hodgepodge together. The election process needs to be fixed. It's really broken. I learned that, but I also learned the American people are amazing. Like I had some fear when I first left home in April, it was like the height of the pandemic and we were on a stay at home order at that time. And I thought that the American people wouldn't have the money to help me wouldn't want to talk to me because of the fear of me, you know, being around and a traveler and so on and all these pandemic fears that people wouldn't want to be approached. But I really found the opposite. Like people were very helpful. People, uh, 95% of the people I met out here were kind, considerate, compassionate, caring Americans. And I really believe if the collective was given the opportunity to give their input on the public policy, um, we would make much better decisions. One, one thing I could also add to all that is um there's this game show i don't know if you've seen it who wants to be a millionaire have you seen that one yeah on it um there's different lifelines you can cast out if you ask the audience the audience gets the right answer on that show 92 percent of the time you know 92 percent that's the wisdom of the crowds wisdom of the people and i believe if we use our collective wisdom to guide public policy um and the collective goodness of the American people, I I just really believe in them far more than I do these private philanthropies that control public policy and spoon-feed policy to these corrupt politicians for their own personal benefit. That system of government isn't working, but I trust the one that I'm proposing will be much, much better.
0: Have you done any research into intentional communities and creating your own government and your own um small nation where you can implement some of these ideas?
1: Well, I thought about running for mayor for a little while, but I never thought, I guess what you're saying has crossed my mind, but the logistics of doing all that is so complex. I just never got further with the idea rather just than thinking, "Well, wow, that'd be cool. But the reason I didn't run for mayor uh, was because of the economic development corruption that i see going on all over this country there's an economic development council in every county in my state and what they do is form these public private partnerships and invite these politicians to be part of these private groups that and there's also a a corporate group that's invested into it like 95 different corporations are invested in my local economic development council and um what I've already explained it a little bit, but what they do is then propose like these 20-year plans for doing these redevelopment projects in our communities that are funded through our real estate tax dollars. And, okay, if I were to run for mayor, maybe there is some things I could do to push back against that in my local community. But those same same sort of forces are going to be imposing their will on every community in my state and really all over the country. Um, the International Economic Development Council guides many of these economic development councils around this country. And the International Economic Development Council has over 4,500 economic development councils under their umbrella. And the Rockefeller Brothers Fund funds the International Economic Development Council. So their agenda is all handed down from on high. And so rather than trying to deal with this problem on a local level, it seems to me to be the best solution to go at it from the top to alter how those councils work and to have the American people give their input on how their communities are developed rather than letting these private institutions dictate it for their own personal interests. So that's that's why I haven't ran for mayor or sought to do a, my own community, like you explained, because I'm more interested in helping protect the whole as best as I possibly can. And running for president seems to me to be the only way I can possibly do that.
0: You mentioned protecting the whole, but what about um, if if the system is so corrupt and there's so many forces working against you, how do you uh, break through it? It, it seems like an impossible uh, fiat.
1: Or... Well, nothing's impossible. You know, With God, anything is possible. And with the will of the American people, anything is possible. And I was just always hoping that somewhere along the line in, in my campaign, it, something would go viral and, and the word of mouth would get spread enough. There are tremendous challenges. I know what you're pointing toward. You know It's true. The way the media manipulates so many people, it's very heartbreaking. And the challenges are real, but I just can't live my life any longer knowing these sources of corruption and just sitting back and thinking little old me can't do anything about it, you know, and just turning a blind eye to it and just focusing on my own family and my own problems. Like I I just can't die a happy man doing that. Like I have to fight back and I have to share this information that I've learned and I have to try to change it or else what is the point of existence? Why am I here if I'm not here to help protect and serve the people? So that's, that's where I'm at with it right now.
0: We want to thank you for being on the show, and uh, we appreciate your, your passion and your desire to bring about change. Uh, we encourage that, and we always uh, are looking for people who, who have great ideas and who are, are willing to make the sacrifices to, to make them a reality.
1: Hey, God bless you. I appreciate you for having me on, and thank you for what you do, too. And we'll see what happens. Hopefully, if all of us work together, we can do something to make America better.